This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. As we enter our next month of social isolation restrictions in our efforts to flatten the curve of the novel coronavirus COVID-19 outbreak, Cultivating Place's Women's History Month interviews wrap up in conversation with Ayana Young. Ayana is a radio personality specializing in intersectional, environmental, and social justice, deep ecology, and land-based restoration. She is the founder and executive director of the Millennial Media Organization and nonprofit For the Wild. She is the host of the podcast of the same name. For her writing and communication and the strength and conviction of her voice and work, she is one of the 75 women featured in my book, The Earth in Her Hands, 75 extraordinary women working in the world of plants. Very honored to have you here today, Ayana. Welcome. Mm. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be speaking with you on this beautiful Northern California day. The mm. sun is peeking out. It's a bit chilly, but it feels wonderful. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me as well. So For the Wild is a podcast. It is also a concept and a movement and a hope. It is something you refer to frequently as an anthology of the Anthropocene. It is born of grief and hope regarding human relationship with the earth. Describe for listeners your plant-based practice, your land-based life, and how they all inform your work in For the Wild. Mm, such a deep question. Thank you for asking. I would say that I am nothing without the land and plants and my relationship to the forest particularly, especially the forest of Cascadia or the temperate rainforest spanning from Northern California up to Southeast Alaska. I my relationship with the land informs all that I do, especially with For the Wild. And I, yeah, it's been a really meaningful journey, the one that I have had with plants. Before I even knew that it was possible to build relationships with the natural world or with plants, I remember feeling extremely lonely and this depression, this feeling of chronic dissatisfaction, unfulfillment in this capitalistic machine of an existence that we are all kind of uh, entangled within at this time. Mm. And I remember feeling so frustrated, like I was pushing up against these brick walls, but I didn't know how to break through and I didn't know what was on the other side, but I could feel the constrainingness of this, yeah, this time that we're living through, the Anthropocene, the sixth mass extinction, climate chaos, modernity. And when I was introduced to having relationships with plants, it was by one of my dear mentors who, who has since passed. Her name was Cascade Anderson Geller. And she was an herbalist and an activist out of Oregon. And I remember still so clearly when I saw her speak for the first time and 
she was talking about her relationships with plants and she was giving the plants a voice and her voice. And I remember this conversation she was explaining to us and she was connecting it with direct action activism around the logging in Mount Hood National Forest. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was just I was shocked in the best way. It was this entire portal to a new world opened. And and I remember I, after sp- taking, you know, listening to her speak and I went directly up to her and I said, I'd love to sign up for your, her, your herbal course. And it happened to be her last herbal course she taught. She passed away during it. And so I, I feel even more blessed that I had a little bit of time with her. And I remember going out. Now, I, at that time, I lived in a little cabin in northwestern Oregon. It was a cedar cabin. It was it had about seven acres of old growth ish. I don't I don't think it was original old growth, but beautiful big leaf maples and dug firs and oh, this incredible patch of devil's club. And then it was logging land for thousands of acres. And I remember going out and I so badly wanted to connect with the plants. And I felt silly because I didn't grow up in a way that opened that world to me. It was never something that I ever heard talked about. I never, I didn't know anybody who had a relationship with plants like that. And so I remember going to trees and being like, okay, hey, hi, how are you? (laughs) You know, and I was like, this is not working. I'm like, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't going to work. Like they're not speaking back to me. And I, now I just feel silly and I don't think this is actually going to work for me. But what I realized was that I needed to have a lot more patience. I needed to slow down Mm -hmm. and I needed to just listen and, and and build trust, build reciprocity, build consent with the plants, with the forest. And so I just went out every day and sometimes I'd pick nettles and sometimes I'd just, uh, just, oh gosh, look at the moss. I just remembering all these visuals that are coming back to me right now. And through that process of not putting so much pressure for the forest to give me something. Because I think I came into it with that very human supremacist entitled type of vibe where I was like, okay, I'm going into the forest and I want something in return. I want to be able to feel like I connected and that will help me. (laughs) And of course it does help me and Mm -hmm. it does help people who do that. But it wasn't until I humbled myself that I was able to really hear directives from the forest and Mm -hmm skip ahead, you know, what is this seven, eight years now? And I went from being a suburban dweller to an urban dweller to a little cabin in the woods to then living in a tent with no running water or electricity for a few years while I listened to the forest and really heard that For the Wild needed to be born and heard that I needed to work with protecting Cascadia in whatever means possible. And, uh, to learn how to restore with integrity. And that's really difficult because the industrial model has pretty much strangled every, every way of doing things in this world. And so when I came to restoration, I had these bright, naive eyes. And then I learned, oh, there's a whole industrial complex to this. And so how do I not add to that? But how do I step back? And again, having to have that patience, have that quietness to really listen. And I'm still learning. And I think I'll probably always be learning. And I don't think I'll ever have it figured out. But yeah, it has definitely my relationship and that that practice of slowness and patience and humility has brought me to where I am now. Mm. 
And there are so many things I want to I want to follow up on in there, Ayana. But one of them is that act of listening and listening for languages that aren't ours or aren't the way we they can mm-hmm. be ours, right? I mean, we have so many different languages than just our verbal language. We have thousands. Um, that we as humans engage in, even if we don't know that we're engaging in them on a conscious level all of the time. But that listening for something else's language is so much a part of the relationship with plants um, in in my life at any rate. And um, I want to follow up uh, before we go deeper into For the Wild and how its um, birth and then growth to this point um, has gone. I want to take you back to um, what you referred to as a childhood that did not open this portal, that did not um, introduce you to relationship with plants in any uh, of these deeper ways, certainly, Um, because I think listeners will be really moved by and be able to relate to the life you lived as as a young person. Will you share, like, who were the people and places and plants that started you off and that eventually you got to where you are? <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely want to speak to those people who are listening who have that little intuition, that instinct spark that's telling you to connect with the natural world and plants, but those of you who don't feel like you have a community to be comforted by in that journey, I totally understand that. And if you would have asked me 20, 30, or yeah, 20 years ago, (laughs) if this is who I'd be, I don't even, I mean, maybe I would, because actually it was interesting. I was cleaning out my mom's garage attic and there was a bunch of stuff from my childhood and I remember opening up this book of poetry from kindergarten and I was writing about the Amazon burning and I was writing about the shallowness of humanity and I was like how did I know this I was like oh my gosh this is really strange and it was really eerie I I had no idea I had written those things so young or that I even knew those things and because for me I, I I remember feeling this opening kind of in high school when I was watching Michael Moore documentaries and reading ad busters. And I had a rebellious friend named Lorna. So her and I were little rebels on our spare time. And so that was my community to just in a way, uh, stretch my mind uh, and really break my conditioning. I think so much of what I had to do. And I feel like probably other people resonate with, with this is unlearn and break that stranglehold that conditioning does to us, making us believe who we are, what we need to be, or even what's possible in this world. And I think that was really this this huge opening for me when I realized, oh my gosh, there are so many possibilities I didn't even understand that even existed. And so when I came to that, it was a little scary because I was like, well, how do I even work with this? And that is where I really had to shatter my identity and really had to strip myself down, which being with the forest has been such an amazing teacher with that, especially when I lived without a lot of the comforts of modern society and convenient society. So, um, yeah, I, I, I did definitely grow up in a way that, 
felt really lonely. And I grew up in Orange County, California. And so the plants that were there, um, I didn't feel like I got to know very well because so much was being developed so quickly. And there was a wetland by where I lived. And I remember there was all these oil wells surrounding the wetland. And then off the coast, there were the um, the big offshore drilling sites. And then there were suburbs popping up all around that. And I didn't know how to say the word suburban sprawl. I didn't know how to understand resource extraction the way I do now or just ra rapid development the way I do now. But I remember in my body feeling this, ugh, like this, this heaviness, this kind of lethargic um, pain that I couldn't, I didn't know how to explain to anybody. I just remember feeling it. And I remember one of the first trips I had into nature was Yosemite when I was probably in middle school. And I remember going, oh my gosh, like, oh wow, there's, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole world. There's a whole world beyond what I understood. And, and so little things like that. And then my mom, as she got older and we got older together, she started, uh, I think we, we went to Washington and that was the first time I remember really being in the temperate rainforest and we would go on hikes. But at that time it was like, okay, let's get in our car. Let's get our trail mix. Let's have our hiking boots on. And we're going to like hike to the top. We're going to, let's pick the trail and get to the top of the mountain. And, and then we'll, we can say, yay, oh, look at the view. And then we'll go back down and we'll get in our car and then we'll go home and we'll go back into light. <laughs> and that was kind of the way I started being with nature. Mm -hmm. But now I never really go on hikes. I never really go on trails. It's a totally different experience because I'm not trying to summit anything. I'm not trying to get to the end to get back to the beginning. I don't even think that way. Uh, a, a dear ally that I live with, Philip, will just go into the woods. And even if we are on a trail, we'll start on a trail. And then very shortly after, something will call us in the forest. We'll go in there and we'll just lay down. And we don't need to get anywhere. And I think that kind of goes back to what I was learning from Cascade and how I start, first really began to build an intimate relationship with the forest is that when I come in with my entitlement or my need to get something, whether that's check off the hike or feel like I'm I'm trying to kind of force something or something like that, it, do, it doesn't allow me to actually hear anything. And so when I slow down and I just be and I get out of this fast paced instant gratification mindset that I have definitely been pressured by in this world to get somewhere, to get something, to go, go, go. Okay. You looked at that. You looked at the big tree now go, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, right. it's not about just looking at the big tree. <laughs> and it's really funny going to parks and just seeing how they're set up to kind of just move people in and move people out. But instead mm -hmm. like lay down, like look at one fern for 30 minutes and, and feel what, what's happening in that place and the birds that will come and the sounds that will come that won't come otherwise, or just what I've been able to see when I slow down with the forest is unbelievable. But also I want to say that this practice has taken me years right? and it's taken me a lot of psychological internal work to not feel so much anxiety and to feel so rushed when I'm trying to spend time with a loved one. And that's really how I feel about the forest and the earth. They are a family member. They are a lover. They are a child. They are my mother. They're everything. They're all relationships. And 
I think if we put into human terms, if we're trying to visit a grandma and we're like, okay, we got to get to grandma. We got to like give her a hug. We got to give her the cake and then leave. And then it's like, well, what are we really, what's, how is that relationship really going to be tended? But when we just sit with our grandma and we're like, you know what, I'm supposed to spend the whole afternoon. I'm not going to have any agenda. I'm just going to sit on down and just wait till she opens up and tells her stories. And then how much more fulfilling can that be? I mean, not that we all have grandmas with great stories, but maybe, maybe some of us do, and that can be something we relate to. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely changed, changed me in a lot of ways. And I'm still learning to slow down. I just had a amazing conversation with a gentleman named Bio Okomalafe. And I will say that even though I learned to slow down to listen to plants, something happened in that time where I, not that I was feeling the urgency to connect with plants, but I was feeling the urgency to protect them. And I was feeling the urgency of the destruction that was happening at such a rapid pace. And so that, that created a different type of anxiety in me that I felt like I had to be really strong, really fast and just kind of meet the rapidness of the urgency with rapidness of solutions. And that kind of, to me has been like my second layer, which I'm right now in is trying to now shatter and Break apart this urgency in me to respond with urgency and respond with rapid fire solutions. Because what I'm learning in my own journey at this point, especially the last few years, that when we create solutions out of this rapid urgency, I think it can be and it has been more detrimental than helpful. And it's also not good for our bodies. And when we think about disease and cancers and all of these things, all of that anxiety and stress and gosh, um, just the adrenals and the, all, all the things that our bodies are going through in this time, um, I think really takes us away from what we're trying to do. If we're trying to connect with the earth and try to find a way that we can be in reciprocity. And I remember this other interview I had done with Kyle White and it was kind of this, this question of, well, how long is it going to take us to fix these environmental problems? <laughs> and he said something like, and I didn't ask that, but he was kind of, he was kind of uh, prepping that question. And he said, you know, it's going to take as long as it takes for us to build trust, reciprocity and consent, something like that. And I was like, wow, okay, this is a whole different model to work from. And I really have to soothe my anxiety to respond to the crisis in a crisis mode. And that has, uh, I feel like that's my next, my next level of um, intimacy building and trust building. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Ayana Young is the founder and host of For the Wild, a podcast and advocacy endeavor focusing on intersectional, environmental, and social justice, deep ecology, and land-based restoration. We'll be right back for more with Ayana. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. April is upon us. Spring has really arrived here in my place. Green and fertile, varied, but also a little temperamental, the way she can be. Snow can be seen on the mountains and even foothills, and the mornings can be cold, the afternoons heated. 
the novel coronavirus might have dictated our lives for just now, and even blinded us, perhaps, to the fact of spring. But it can't stop spring. And in something of an ironic twist, the virus, while wreaking havoc and pain on many lives, has simultaneously brought many of us to a standstill. A reset in which, for once, we actually have the time to be out in spring, gardening, walking, safe distances from one another, and taking in the glory. We here in the U.S., and likely most of the globe, are headed into another month, at very least, of social isolation and distancing, and anticipating peak numbers of coronavirus cases and deaths being reported across the country over the coming weeks. We will also experience, if we pay attention, peak spring. Which brings me to this idea of social isolation. It was very, very interesting to re-listen to this conversation I recorded with Ayana a few weeks ago as I prepared to be gone for several weeks on book tour. We connected before the coronavirus had brought the world as we knew it to a halt, a painful and whiplash-inducing kind of full stop. I hear Ayana talking about the loneliness she felt before she understood she could build relationships with plants. And I hear the anxiety of social distancing and social isolation, the loneliness of it expressed in myriad ways online, loud and soft, defiant and forlorn, right now as we battle with fear and confusion daily. And from this, I keep trying to remind my own anxiety, my children's anxiety and fear, we are not alone. We are never alone. The geese are flying. The seeds are sprouting. The trees and birds are doing their ingenious and age-old reproductive dances. And the soil is warming and waking. The poison oak is unfurling and rattlesnakes are starting to move out of their dormancy. Just as the house wren and the fat red peony shoots are also. There is always what we perceive to be good and bad. There is always life and death. And we are never alone. As the poet Rilke stated so beautifully, and this generous, abundant planet reminds me every day, quote, Believe in a love that is stored up for you like an inheritance, and have faith that in this love there is a strength and a blessing so large you can travel as far as you wish without having to step outside it. End quote. That blessing is the valley oak, the spring violets, the ponderosa pine the summer's cleansing heat, the winter's insulating storms, and the autumnal nourishing compost of leaf biomass. The plant-based biome on which we depend is a blessing of love, which, even in the middle of a desert, even in our own homes and isolation, we can lean into and learn from.
believe in a green companionship so large you can travel as far as you wish, even into your own small home, seemingly all alone, and know that you are not alone. Now, back to our conversation with Ayana Young of For the Wild podcast. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Ayana Young, host and founder of For the Wild, quote, an anthology of the Anthropocene focused on land-based protection, co-liberation, and intersectional storytelling rooted in a paradigm shift from human supremacy towards deep ecology, end quote. It takes us back to that that known truth that we have to take care of ourselves if we want to take care of something else effectively or meaningfully or healthily. You moved from a suburban and um, very sort of L.A.-based California life. Um, you went off to college in New York. You had some epiphanies there in the sort of time of... Occupy Wall Street that eventually got you back to the West Coast and and starting, really starting on this journey, this unlearning journey, uh, as you talk about it. And you, you know, the, the imagery that you talked about being a young woman, you know, quite young, and sort of having the sense of coming up against brick walls. And they tie into this sense um that you repeat again when you start this journey up in northern Oregon. And this, um, like, you will go to engage in an activity that you think is helping because it is part of the kind of mainstream paradigm for what is, you know, ecological restoration. You get into that and you realize that it is actually fully enmeshed in the industrial petrochemical urgency complex, and it might be just making the whole thing worse because it's the wrong mindset. And it's like this unveil, like um, unmasking of blind spot after blind spot after blind spot in getting into this higher perspective. And each one feels a little better, I think. You know, you, you describe what you're doing in the podcast, in these deep conversations you have with really interesting people. In some of the bigger projects, not bigger, I shouldn't say it that way, some of the more like on-the-ground projects, the One Million Redwoods uh, replanting project and the Tongass uh, grassland protection work, you talk about this idea of intersectional environmental and social justice, deep ecology, and land-based restoration. Describe what you mean by that with some further examples of because uh, you've already started to refer to some of your past guests and some of the concepts that they've brought up for you that make you go, ah, okay, another perspective. Talk about why these intersections for you and and how they all come together a little bit. Well, I'm sure all of us at some point have heard, it's all connected. Our bodies are connected. The earth is connected. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of this this thing that's thrown out a lot and maybe some of us 
sit for a while and go, yeah, you know, that's right. Or maybe some of us go, yeah, yeah. And like, probably that's who I was a few years ago, even like, now, what does that really mean um, for me with the intersections is what I'm talking about there in this intersectional uh, way of understanding climate, environmental, social justice issues is that uh, when I was coming to this knowing that I feel now, and it's, it, it, it is a feeling of knowing because I don't think that we can really intellectually know something in a way that we feel like we can in this dominant culture of science and politics. And, and, you know, there's this human supremacy where we feel like we can really know things, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of backing up from that as well and going, well, okay. When I was a young one and I was growing up and I would see things like, you know, I, I might go to a neighborhood and I'd see, poverty or, you know, growing up in the LA area, there was a lot of homeless people, or you could go to um, a place and you could see clear cuts. And then you could go to another place, high cancer rates or, or the, the smokestacks or the incinerators in uh, neighborhoods of color or areas that didn't have as much money, like even in the Bay area, looking at Richmond and then looking at Marin and seeing how close they are, but seeing also how different they really are. And I was taking all this knowledge in. And then I, like you mentioned at Occupy Wall Street, that was very much about a social economic context. It wasn't about the environment. And when I was there, I was like, wait a minute. Um, Why are we not talking about the earth? There is no wealth on a dead planet. There are no jobs on a dead planet. So we can't really be just talking about we need jobs if we're not understanding that resources come from the earth. And to get those resources, usually it's polluting somebody else somewhere else. And when we're not looking at those externalities, then how are we really creating justice? And so I was sitting in these questions and then I would learn, you know, with the Tongass and look into old growth logging. And I was horrified that we were logging old growth on our national forest lands with taxpayer dollars subsidizing to the tune of, I think, $20 million a year, even maybe more now just to cut the last remaining old growth forest. Mm. And even that I would go up and, and I, and I did for, I have for many years and I still do. And I would talk to people and I was like, I can't believe old growth is being logged. And then I dig in deeper and I go, Oh my gosh, the Alaska native claim settlement act, native corporations, this type of um, forced poverty on, on people, on the native indigenous um, Clinket, Haida, and Shimshian peoples. And I start looking deeper and talking about resource extraction, realizing it's not just the trees, it's also the mining. It's not just the mining, it's also extracting native youth from their communities that are now not able to hold the traditional knowledge in the way that their grandparents were. So when we're talking about resource extraction, what are we really talking about? And how can we have a broader frame of reference? Because... There is no environmental movement without social justice movements and vice versa, because when we're thinking about places being destroyed, who are the people who are actually going to stand up for those places? You know, a lot of us, for instance, say in California, we may go, gosh, we don't want this logging to happen in Alaska, but it's really the people in Alaska on the ground the, the grassroots people and a lot of times the indigenous folks who are the ones who are actually willing to put their lives on the line to protect these places. And so we have to support the justice of the people 
so that they can support the justice for it, the earth. And and that can be applied all over the world. I was at a conservation summit in September and I was interviewing a few people um, from South America and Africa. And probably a lot of us have heard about the illegal poaching of rhinos and elephants, um, tigers and so on and forth in Africa. But again, like if we're not looking at the communities of people who are struggling because of multinational companies and their resource extraction projects, and then creating this intense poverty in these areas that are then forced to either take these animals to really make ends meet because they're not making a lot of money when you actually look at it. But it's like, well, wait, if those people are supported, and not to say that outsiders need to support them, but even creating systems to support themselves, then they're not going to be forced to... Uh, destroy their own land base. And that's really what I see global capitalism doing all over the world is it's pushing people into a corner to destroy their own land base or weakening them so they cannot protect their own land base um, against these huge corporate entities that threaten people's lives. And we've seen that in South America and the Amazon activists who speak up get murdered. They get beaten, they get raped. And so again, here we go again with the social justice, environmental justice. They need to be interlocked. And a lot of my allies have been really frustrated with the environmental movement for years. And they've, you know, and, and conservation and the like, because they're saying, you know, these people over here, let's say they're white and privileged, which usually that's the case, and they're fighting for the environment and they're getting the funding and they're getting the limelight. But what about the people actually directly connected to these issues on the ground? What are their needs in order to protect their families and their and their, and then protect the land? And so, um, it of course these intersections make things so much more complicated. Because it's not just an easy solution of, okay, let's just go in and stop the logging. Well, it's like, of course, yeah, let's definitely go in and stop the logging. But it's a, like we really have to take a step back and start to see the entire web if we want things to be sustainably protected. Because it's sure, like it's hard enough just to get things protected to begin to begin with. But if we really want things to stay protected, we need to support the communities on the ground because again, they're going to be the ones to make sure that that place is protected over generations. And where our deep ecology fits into that, it's not just about us. It's not actually, this work isn't all for the humans, even though I just kind of explained why the humans are so important and they are in this, in this whole web. But it's also important for me to do my work uplifting the plants and the creatures and the more than human world. The more than human world gets, oh gosh, they just get, they get the short end of the stick every time because we live in a world where our ideology and our politics are so human centered that the creatures are maybe if they're lucky an afterthought and that does not sit well with me. And so I really am coming from a place of how do I break out of my human supremacy, knowing that I'm always going to be a human and knowing that I'll always have certain tendencies because I'm a creature in my own right. But how do I expand my respect? 
how do I expand my integrity and my relationships with the more than human world and say, you know, I'll never be not a human. Well, maybe in this lifetime, I don't know actually how I feel about reincarnation, but right now I'm a human and I'm here and I know my lifestyle does crazy things and very destructive. And I will say that I am not some, uh, savior on a mountain or something like I am just as much invested and entrenched in consumer culture as probably most people listening to this to this conversation and I feel a lot of grief around that and I feel frustrations with myself a lot of the time and I'm constantly trying to listen and go, okay, like I'm going to try that much harder to be in reciprocity. And I'm going to try to understand this addiction I have to fossil fuels and to modern lifestyle and really take uh, time to realize how it is affecting and impacting the entire earth, the more than humans, the trees, the plants, the soil, the, the air, the waters, the creatures, the insects, all of it. Although it can feel really heavy and it does, but to me, I, I really believe that the more than humans know when we are acknowledging them, know when we're thinking about them, know when we're ignoring them. And that is just not the kind of relationship I want to have in a spiritual sense, in a moral sense, even if I will never save anything or fix anything, the relationship and, and the more than humans and humans and myself knowing that, hey, I'm not perfect and I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, but I'm not going anywhere and I will always acknowledge you and I will always see you and I will always continue to keep showing up even in my imperfections, even in my messiness, <laughs> because like, I don't know if I'll ever solve those things. I don't, I'm not sure if me or humanity as a whole will ever be able to, especially in my lifetime, get to a place where we're in, quote, harmony with the natural world. I'm not sure if we're going to get there, but I'm going to sure as hell try. And I'm going to also really um, see these other creatures like the orca, like the salmon. And those are some creatures that have spoken very loudly to me. And especially with my work in Alaska and the old growth logging and the mining projects and really all up and down the Pacific Northwest, um, because I feel like the salmon and the orca and really all the, all, all of the more than humans, they're crying out for us. They're saying, please like, look at us, can respect us. We also have lives. We also have children. We also have our own destinies and y'all ignore us. Like we don't matter. Like we are totally dispensable. And I think that that's part of the unlearning that we can just be so lackadaisical or so move on so quickly when we know how many creatures are going extinct and dying off so quickly. But somehow we hear this information or maybe we swipe through social media and then we go, oh no, there's, oh no, the orca are collapsing. Oh, well, okay, I got to get on this next phone call. And I know that that's a part of this weird modern life that we could just see these really horrific things and move on. I think partially it's a survival mechanism because it's really hard to feel the intensity and the immensity of what we're losing right now. But it's also respect to what we're losing. It's also respect to them to say, yeah, I'm going to see you 
and I'm going to cry with you and I'm going to, I'm going to be here with you as you pass and not because we're going to be able to fix it. Maybe we won't be able to save the orcas. I don't know. I sure as hell hope we can. And I hope when, you know, I hope enough of us push for the snake river dams to come down so that hopefully the sockeye can go up and spawn and feed the orca of the sailor sea. Because the last time I checked, there's 75 orcas left and they can be functionally extinct quite quickly. I think if we lose six more because they won't be able to reproduce. This is, this is where I feel deep ecology really fits into my work. It's an emotional, spiritual attachment, connection, acknowledgement relationship that is saying, I'm unwilling to be, what's the word I'm looking for, um, numbed by modernity, by this consumer capitalist lifestyle, so that I won't even look at my more than human relatives while they are being destroyed. And I'm also adding to that destruction. And I need to be really honest about that. And it's hard, you know, it doesn't feel good. But <laughs> Why do we also think that we need to feel good all the time? Right. Like right. it's not, I think it's important for us to be healthy, but I think also in quote unquote America, so-called America, we've been sold this bill of rights that we're supposed to be happy and consume all the time or something and like never, like maybe like not take responsibility for our actions and somehow that's going to lead us to happiness. But I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true that we can actually reach true fulfillment or happiness when we're lying to ourselves. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Ayana Young is the founder and host of For the Wild, a podcast and advocacy endeavor focusing on intersectional, environmental, and social justice, deep ecology, and land-based restoration. We'll be right back for more with Ayana. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, leadership is on my mind as we finish up this Women's History Month series, focusing on some of the women from my book, The Earth in Her Hands. In part of our conversation, not in this final aired version, Ayana suggests to listeners that when it comes down to it, it is up to us to look for and find leaders who are doing their work with integrity, with community and the future of all humans and more than humans in mind. Leaders like the many indigenous peoples across this continent over time who are willing to put their bodies on the line to protect the trees, the waters, the salmon who feed the orcas, the grasslands and floodplains that nurture those salmon, that feed those orcas. For me, this was one of the most profound and deeply imprinted takeaways from working on this book and immersing myself in the work of these 75 women and the many, many good humans who could have been in the pages of this book. And that was what leadership really looks like. It looks to me like people who can see the forest and the trees, like humans who can lead not from the top down, 
but from the center out. Interconnecting concerns and constraints, hopes and ambitions, real leaders are working horizontally and lifting entire communities with them as they progress. And these leaders, they are fueled by heart and voice, not by wallets and whims. Leaders put their bodies on the line for what they believe in and value for the good of the whole. Odd as it may seem to say, I believe gardeners in their very own ways from small home gardeners to market gardeners to vegetable growers to windowsill plant parents. Gardeners are leaders engaged in growing our world rather than extracting what they can from it. And they are building relationships plant by plant based on care, reciprocity, and trust. These are very, very good traits in a leader. Who are the leaders informing you? Are you among them? Now, back to our conversation with Ayana Young of For the Wild podcast. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We are now several weeks into the self-isolation and stay-at-home, shelter-in-place restrictions of the novel coronavirus COVID-19 outbreak across our globe. This week, we're in conversation with Ayana Young, host and founder of For the Wild, a podcast and advocacy group working to celebrate land-based protection and a paradigm shift in our world. We're back now with Ayana for the last segment of our conversation. Okay. Now I'm just wanting to hyperventilate, Ayana. And and that's good. And that's good. And you're right, because this right here is the, the heart for me and the power of your voice and your conversations. And in that like horrible, painful, uncomfortable truth of the lies we tell ourselves and the busyness that we allow our lives to be distracted by all the time is a sleight of hand. And it is, it is our job to see beyond it, to move back from it, to say, is this really where I want to be? Am I consenting to this? And if I am not, then what? And as you describe how complex and interwoven and insidious the problems are and interconnected the problems are, you also shed light on the solution in that all we can do is start where we are. And that makes a difference, even if it's just a difference of spirit and intention and mindset. And that to me is powerful. And and we know that it can actually affect some powerful progress. It's slow and it's tiny, but if we don't give up, it starts to accumulate. And we have to hope, you know, especially when you look, and you of all people know this, you look at an old growth red or yellow cedar that's 1,200 years old or one of our bristlecone pines up in the White Mountains. They are, you know, 
tens of thousands of years old. Like that for me allows me to breathe a little bit and move back from the urgency that causes overwhelm and crippling despair. We should not be excused from despair, but we should not let ourselves um, indulge in crippling despair. This is where I think I find great joy and solace in the conversations that you host because they are so intersectional. They shed light on some of the complexities of this conversation. And I'll give you an example. You've referred to a couple, but just in one of your most recent episodes, you have talked about ecology and sexuality and how it is connected in mindsets and cultural frameworks um, that have been allowed to be changed by colonial Western control um, for a purpose that doesn't necessarily serve us. And we don't generally think about these things. Like I'm out in my garden, you know, I, I talk to my plants, they talk back to me. But I don't generally then associate sexuality with that. But when I'm listening to your podcast, I understand that it is involved, actually. There is this overlay. And it's one of the tiny, like, non-beneficial mycorrhiza that is part of the problem. And therefore, there's a tiny little beneficial mycorrhizal connection that can offset that. When I look, Ayana, at your last, you know, even just your most recent um, episodes and the titles, and it it gives a little bit of an illustration of just how intersectional these conversations are. The one with Dr. Tallbear on reviving kinship and sexual abundance, another on reorienting within a world of plastic, another on slowing down in urgent times, another on decentralizing the power of healing. The, I think at their, at their most meta level, your conversations are, are helping us to shift our intellectual constructs and our cultural paradigms. But they also somehow, at least for me, but maybe that's how I see the world, they come back to plants in some way. Um, do you feel this? And in, if so, in... Can you um, elucidate that a little bit, Ayana? Yeah, I absolutely will. And before I say that, I did want to mention about your book, The Earth and Her Hands. I was with a dear friend, Mila, <sighs> uh, in the San Juan Islands, and she got a, a book delivered and she opened it up and she didn't know that I was also in the book. And so we were scrolling through and, and I was like, Oh, and I, I loved seeing her in the book. And then she flipped through and saw me and we just kind of gave each other a giggle and a hug. And, and I feel really honored to have been included. And it's such a beautiful book. And, um, it was just so fun seeing it for the first time together. And yeah. And then I got a message that mine was being delivered at my home. So I just wanted to give a little shout out there. And, when it comes to the plants and how they connect to all of these conversations, um, I, yeah, I, I'm trying to think how to say this. That is, that doesn't seem so simple, but it kind of is. Mm -hmm. 
um, the the plants they're the holders of the wisdom to me. The earth is really what's holding it all together. They are the they are the mycelium. They are the roots. They are the webs. They're the ones that are are holding this grief for us, holding the curiosity for us. Like I, I it's it, nothing I'm going to say right now is maybe going to feel very linear or clear because it's not the way that I experience this it's type not, of <laughs> like it's not the way uh, plants this, work either right <laughs> no it's not the way plants work so I'm like going to try to put this in a human context but um I wouldn't be having these conversations if it wasn't for the plants I wouldn't have the strength I wouldn't have the inspiration all inspiration to me comes from the earth, it comes from the plants, it comes from the forest, it comes from the smell of them, it comes from the sight of them, it comes from the touch of them. I mean, they, I also feel like they are so strong and they hold this cauldron of all that I'm thinking and feeling at the time. And, and I can say that, um, for these conversations, because they are so different from one another, although they have similar themes. Um, it's the plants that clear my mind so that I can even begin to grasp or begin to open these other portals of thought. The plants, they, they clean the mind out for me. They are, um, and, and I, with that cleaning of the mind, they focus and clarify what actually is important. I always come back to the plants. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have been getting lost in this, <laughs> uh, whether it's my ego issues or my uh, woe is me moments or whatever it is, my frustrations, my stresses, just getting wrapped up in my little life or my human existence. And then I go back to the plants and, and the trees and, and the waters and they're like, okay, let me scrub this for you. Like none <laughs> of this stuff is supportive. It doesn't actually even really matter. You're getting trapped in this human mm. rat wheel. Get out, see what's important, take a deep breath and move forward or move. Uh, it's not really a forward, but just, you know, move out of the, uh, that that monkey mind that as some people call it or just getting caught up in our own in our own worlds like there are so many worlds beyond the ones that we can get stuck in in our own heads and i and so i i guess like what i'm trying to get to now that i'm speaking it out loud is the plants help bring me out of selfishness and that is one of the most potent gifts and offerings that I have learned from the forest is get outside of my own selfishness, my own self-absorption, my own entitlement to what I think I should have or be or feel and realize that they are who I work for. They are who I fight for. And the beauty and the strength of them is so overwhelming that when I work for them and when they are my priority, everything falls in line. When I try to make myself 
that and not to say self-care, all that is important. I'm not saying that kind of stuff. I'm kind of more speaking to the, the jumbliness. Like when I get trapped in myself, it is a hellhole. <laughs> when I step outside and I go, no, the plants are who I'm, the plants are who I'm working for. They are the priority. It's amazing how the release of the ego happens and then the portal to fulfillment opens up and it's like the trees and the plants are just waiting on the other end being like, I love you. Let's do this. Like we got each other. And that kind of familial intimacy and commitment and comfort has by far been the most stabilizing um, relationship of my life. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been an honor to speak with you and hear more about your story and your work, Ayana. Mm. Well, Jennifer, this has been really lovely to talk with you. And every time you've asked me a question, I looked up at this grandmother Madrone out my window and the redwoods that are surrounding her. And so they were with us and, um, and I really appreciate you and your commitment to the plants. I, I hear the plants through your voice and it's really lovely. So thank you. Ayana Young is a radio personality specializing in intersectional environmental and social justice, deep ecology, and land-based restoration. She is the founder and executive director of the Millennial Media Organization and nonprofit For the Wild. She is also the voice and host of the podcast of the same name. Join us again next week when we hear from another woman whose life and work are predicated on the value of teaching and learning how to grow at least some of your own food in almost any sized piece of yard. Nicole Burke is the founder of Gardenary. Join us then. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. The earth is in all of our hands. So take good care. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over on CultivatingPlace.com this week, make sure to check out the many photos of the work behind For the Wild. While you're there, make sure to be subscribed to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And sign up to receive the monthly newsletter, which went out this last week. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place, even in social isolation. I'm Jennifer Jewell.